Okay. Um, I want to talk about DevOps. And you're here, so you probably want to talk about DevOps too, um, which, which is cool. I think the most important and first thing for you to understand about DevOps is that DevOps is a thing uh, that people do, uh, and it's a thing that we have been doing now for a long time, uh, much longer than there was a word DevOps, right? Um, and it, it comes out of this lived experience of the people who built the web in the first place, right? Um, I'm about 40, um, and my, my career started working for ISPs. Because uh, I ran bulletin boards when I was a kid, and I knew how modems worked, and they were like, "Man, you have a job." Um, does anybody remember getting a job? Because you know how a modem worked. There's a few of you in here. What's up? That guy knows. Um, this is good. it's good. I didn't go to college. It was dope. Um, but uh, we also didn't know how to do anything because no one had ever built anything on the internet before, sort of by definition, that was built for consumers. So all these people wound up trying to build stuff on the internet, and uh, you know, we'd go buy a book or whatever. Um, and we would do what it told us and it would break. Like it just didn't work. Uh, and so we would make new stuff up. Um, and so eventually over a long enough period of time, we made this stuff up, uh, and we called this thing DevOps. Um, but as a side effect of it, not being a thing that sort of came out of someone's head, you know, it's not like we didn't pop out of Zeus's brain, uh, sort of just rock in the DevOps, right? Like it happened over the course of a long time. It meant that any individual person who even now identifies in, in a DevOpsy way, uh, identifies in a unique way. And I think because of that uniqueness, uh, we have struggled uh, to really define what DevOps is, right? Um, how many people here think you know what DevOps is? Right. This, I mean, every hand should go up. Like, you went to a talk, and it was like, DevOps, and it's not like year one of DevOps, right? But we don't really, like, we struggle to define it. And we struggle because that uniqueness at its core makes everyone's answer different, right? Um, but that difference is also sort of what makes it beautiful. And so as I was thinking about this problem uh, a couple of years ago, um, I started to think about it this way. Um, another thing that sort of represents, uh, 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 it's a word that represents a, uh, you know, a bigger pile of things um, is, is Kung Fu. Um, so when we really look at, at what this means, it's the excellence achieved through long practice in one's skills. Um, and it, it sort of literally means like the work or achievement or merit of mankind, right? So it's it's the it's it's the value of our efforts, right? Um, and when we think about about DevOps, um, and we think about why it's hard to define and why it's different, but also the same, uh, we get some similar things out of kung fu. So when we think about kung fu, we tend to think about this thing. Um, this is wushu, right? But there's lots of different kung fu. You can have strong kung fu. Uh, in lots of different things. Uh, I have no actual, like, wushu kung fu at all. Like, if you want to fight me, I will lose. And I have, like, I have no martial arts background whatsoever. Um, but I'm pretty, I have pretty strong comic book kung fu, right? Like, I can totally take on, like, an eight-year-old at, like, naming Marvel comic book characters and their backgrounds. And, like, I got that, right? Um, and... Uh, the thing about Wushu is that if you if you look at those guys, each of those guys is uh, is a master of a different school of Wushu. So, uh, but if, when we look at them, we just see Kung Fu guys mostly, right? Um, but here's what what unites them uh, are really three things. So one are the basics of Wushu. So they all sort of practice the same fundamentals, right? Of of what those things are, and they practice some shared forms. There's some behaviors that they do that other people who also do wushu recognize as being wushu, right? They're like, oh yeah, when you do that, I, I know what that is and we kind of share it. And then where they start to differ 
uh, is their application, right? The way they apply their kung fu is very, very different, right? So even though they practice the same forms and their basics are the same, when it comes down to their particular application and their particular place, uh, it's it's quite different. Uh, a good example here. This is the thing, um, and and the thing about uh, about the thing. Uh, when you see this guy, does this guy do kung fu, right? Uh, the answer is no. He's a he's a big brick dude who, you know, cosmic rays came down and he was changed with his buddies and what he does is clobber you. That's the thing. He just jumps out and he's like, it's clobbering time, right? And when he shows up, you know what's going to happen. He's going to clobber somebody, right? If he was here now, you'd be like, oh my God, who's the thing going to clobber? Like, that's how it would go. Um, and that's, that's the thing about DevOps. Um, when people who know Kung Fu see other people who know Kung Fu, they're like, right, Kung Fu, I got you, even though they could be quite different. Um, and when the thing walks in the room, they know you might be tough, right? You, you're a superhero, you can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Hulk, but what you are not is doing DevOps, right? Or what, what you aren't is doing Kung Fu. Like, uh, and this is the same thing with DevOps. So what I'd hope to do in this talk is get you to a place where you know DevOps when you see it, right? Where you can differentiate between the things you're doing and the way you're behaving and the things that look and feel and smell and act like DevOps versus the things that don't, right? So I believe this is, this is sort of my kung fu. Um, and I, I think it comes from this deep well of practical philosophy. The people who built DevOps came out of this practical place, right? And we took our experience, and it was unique to each of us, and we recognized in each other those basics and forms. And this literally happened. So O'Reilly had a conference called Velocity, uh, and they did this thing called the Summit before the first Velocity. And honestly, that was the first time that a lot of the people who built the big web had ever been in the same room at the same time. Um, and what they learned was that they were doing the exact same stuff, right? They never talked to each other about it. Um, they just, once they were all in the same place at the same time, they're like, oh yeah, we are totally alike, right? And then we kept doing it. And next thing you know, we could recognize each other by those basics and by those forms, right? We started to see in each other the same behaviors that we understood. Uh, and then we took that kung f our, our, our DevOps and we went out and we practiced it in our daily life, right? Okay, so whether you like a single definition of DevOps or not, or uh, how many people here don't like being called like a DevOps engineer? Yeah, I don't either. So I'm a systems administrator, right? I'm a CTO, I guess now, but like, let's be honest, I'm a systems administrator, right? Um, <clears throat> uh, so I don't like it either, but the truth is it doesn't matter because DevOps is very busily reinventing the way that every large organization on the planet does their operations and their software development. So sort of whether you like the word or you don't, the truth is it is reinventing how we do our business and it's happening right now. And so you just need to sort of get, get past it. Um, the next thing to understand is who is DevOps for, right? So, uh, you know, the most important thing about DevOps, which we'll get to in a second, is that uh, in the end, this is a way of working that developed through necessity, right? We were trying to build these systems that operate in a different way and through that thing, we learned how to work differently. What that means is it touched everybody. It wasn't just the operations dudes who were working differently. It was also the women in operations. It was also the people in leadership. It was sales reps. It was marketing people. It was the whole company that was really transformed by this thing because the system is really quite connected. An important thing to remember here, though, is I'm not saying that in a DevOps world, everyone knows everything, right? We don't all become like this soup of generalists. Instead, what we become are highly connected specialists. 
right? Uh, we just become much better at talking to each other and leveraging each other's special skills to create the whole outcome. This is my style of Kung Fu. Like I said before, uh, yours will be different. If you talk to someone else who has also been doing DevOps for a long time, theirs will be different as well. And they will quibble with my definition and they'll be like, I hate that part. Later on where Adam talks about DevOps involving product development. Product should stay out of my DevOps. And like, God bless those people, that's their way. This one's mine. Um, and if you like it, it can be yours. Feel free to take it, do what you want with it, uh, but develop your own unique style. Okay, so just like Wushu, I think we can talk about DevOps by breaking it down into three different elements. So one are the principles uh, of DevOps, and I think these are universal. So regardless of your point of view or of your opinion, the things that are, are foundational to what it means to be doing DevOps, those are shared by everyone. And then there are our forms. Those are the things we do when we're doing DevOps. And those pretty much we share. Like we're all gonna do those things. We might do them a little differently, but fundamentally they're all, all those activities are gonna happen. And then last, there's the specific way we apply our skills uh, to, our, to our problem. All right, let's start with principles. So in order to talk about principles, first we have to talk definitions. So here's my definition uh, of DevOps. It is a cultural and professional movement focused on how we build and operate high-velocity organizations born from the experiences of its practitioners. Let's break it down. So the first thing it is is cultural and professional. So it's cultural, like hip-hop or heavy metal. I like heavy metal. I'm wearing a Neurosis t-shirt, right? So like that's a sign of my cultural affiliation. Like I'm a part of this thing. And I saw a dude earlier today with an Amon A. Marth t-shirt on, and I like threw him the horns, and I was like, Amon A. Marth! And he was like, yeah! Right? Because we have a culture. We share that thing, right? So we can do the same thing with DevOps. You can be like, DevOps! And I'll be like, yeah, DevOps, right? Um, okay. So it's a cultural thing. You can be affiliated with it. And you can do that without being a professional. I am not a professional heavy metal player. I don't play in a band. Uh, I play guitar so badly that no band would have me. Um, so, uh, uh, but I'm still part of heavy metal culture. Same thing can be true of DevOps, right? You can be like a DevOps enthusiast, which is weird, but possible. Okay. Um, uh, you can also be a professional, right? And so, like an MC or a lead guitarist or an animator, right? So you can be a part of a culture and then you can also have a job inside of that culture, right? So it's cultural and it's professional. It's focused on how we build and operate things. So it's both the details. How do we build it? And then it's also how do we operate that thing we built over time? Right? So it doesn't stop at one end of the spectrum or another. It doesn't start at engineering and end at engineering. It starts at engineering or starts at ideation, starts way before engineering, and goes all the way through to the loop of running that thing in production until it's no longer necessary. Right? Covers the whole, the whole thing. And then high velocity organizations. So the people who brought you DevOps, for better or for worse, uh, all were trying to be in high velocity organizations. We were trying to figure out how to work faster, to service more people, to get better at scale, right? Um, and as a side effect of that, all the principles and all of the forms and all the behaviors of DevOps are oriented to getting you to work at velocity and at scale. Um, if you apply those same principles to a low velocity problem, Right? If you really actually just want to go slowly, maybe these are stupid principles and you should work the way we worked before we invented them. Right? And this is okay. Like, what we, it, it exists for high scale and high velocity. And then last, it's born from the experiences of its practitioners, most of whom were the web innovators. And it's worth remembering where this advice comes from. Because how many people here work uh, in the big web? And how many people here work in an enterprise? Right, a little over half the room. So 
one of the things to remember is most of the people who brought you DevOps have never worked in an enterprise in their lives. Uh, I know a lot of us in the very beginning and like maybe less than half, right? So it's not that what we're selling you isn't good for the enterprise. It super is. Um, but uh, a lot of the advice comes from that perspective. And so you need to be willing to take your own unique perspective, embrace those forms, embrace those principles, and then make that your own uh, in your own environment. Okay, so if that's what DevOps is, what are the foundational ways of thinking about ourselves that set us up to be successful when we do it? And I think it's really four foundational things. So one is to think about designing your systems uh, and your culture for uh, optimizing the safety, the contentment, the knowledge, and the freedom uh, of both your peers and your customers. So if this is the place you start from, the rest sort of flows well. And I promise I'll get nerdier, uh, but you just gotta kick it with me here in philosophical land for a little bit longer. So the first one is safety. So safety can take a couple of different aspects. There's human safety, right? Like if the software you build could fail and someone would die, right? Uh, that's bad, right? So uh, you need to optimize to make sure that those things don't happen. Information safety is, you know, are you keeping people's HIPAA data as compliant? Um, it's also just the simple ability for people to act without fear of unintended consequences. If every time I go to deploy the website, I might could lose a million dollars, suddenly deploying becomes highly unsafe, right? And I don't want to do it anymore. And like that, it has an impact on our culture, right? So another is contentment. So I struggled with contentment as a word um, because you kind of want to put happiness up here. But the thing about happiness is that happiness isn't a goal. Um, as Eleanor Roosevelt said, it is a byproduct of, uh, of a life well lived. Because I have bad days. Nobody ever, nobody's happy every day. So you can't have a principle that says, one of the things DevOps people are is happy people. Because like, I'm sometimes a miserable bastard, right? Um, but, uh, but what I am is overall quite content with the structure of the systems that go through my daily life, right? Um, and so you need to be too. So you need to design systems that help people to be content, especially when uh, things are not working so well for them. Knowledge. So access to knowledge is one of the ways we know that we're getting better uh, as human beings and as a society. And so we need to build our systems in a way that allow people more access to more knowledge. So a good example here is in a large enterprise, you can often ask a question like, for example, uh, how do we configure the firewall? And someone will tell you, I can't tell you that. And you're like, why? And they're like, because you're in the wrong group. This is bad for knowledge sharing, right? It's a super good example. Everybody here can be like, that's dumb. And it's not because you necessarily need to know how to configure the firewall. It's because you had a problem that would have helped. You could have solved the bigger problem if we could have understood and communicated with each other. Okay. And then last is freedom. So this is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Um, and what we mean by freedom when we talk about it as a principle is that we need to figure out how to empower ourselves and other people to act and speak and think as they need to in the system with low friction. So if you are an operations person and your uh, job is creating a pipeline that allows people to put software in production, but in order to get the software in production, you put 18 gates and a long review process where they have to go to a change control board in order to get a change approved, you might be could hindering their freedom of movement just a, just a tad, right? Um, and you need to think about how that principle of freedom can help you solve that problem, right? Um, you're, you're instead sort of trapping people in their box. Okay, another fundamental truth of DevOps is that DevOps values people more than it values products which it values more than it values companies, right? And this is also true when you just think about how to build good stuff. If one part of doing this is that you wanna have better outcomes, well, 
you know, sad people have a tendency to build sad products and sad products build sad companies. Happy people at least have a shot. It's no guarantee, but at least they have a shot at building a good product. And if you have a good product, you have a shot at building a good company. If you have a shitty product, let's just face it, you're gonna have a bad company. Eventually, eventually it will out, right? Okay, people who do DevOps tend to be lean. Uh, and I mean lean in the agile lean sense, right? So they tend to want to eliminate non-value added action. We prefer systems that are pull-based over push-based because they scale better. Um, they tend to practice Kaizen. This is continuous improvement. Um, Kaikaku when we need it. So this is disruptive change, right? So sometimes you can't increment your way to a better world. You just, you have to burn it all down and start again, right? Not very often, resist. But every now and again, it's true. Um, and we prefer to work in small batches, uh, and we prefer to frame those small batches in terms of experiments, right? So we would like, to, we would rather build the smallest thing that will validate some part of an assumption, right? Than we would run a big long project thinking that the outcomes might could be good when we get there in the end. Um, people who do DevOps embrace failure um, because we re we recognize that failure uh, also leads to learning. We also recognize uh, that when we try to build systems that don't fail, what we do is stifle freedom of movement, right? So when we design systems to never fail, what we do is make those systems never change. So a good example is a heart-lung machine. I do not want anyone in this room to ever continuously deliver a heart-lung machine, right? This is dumb. People will die. Don't do it. I want it to, I want it to be designed to not break, right? But we don't do heart-lung machines, right? I do infrastructure automation. That shit can break all the time, and mostly it's cool. Um, um, and, and when it's not, you'll work it out, right? Okay, failure. Uh, we embrace ubiquitous workflow automation. Um, we, in order to have less friction, we need to work better together faster, right? Um, and we do that by cranking out the same things as often as we can. So this donut machine's a good example. Um, it's a magical machine. It makes the perfect crispy little donut every single time. It like rates out the exact person, the exact amount of stuff, and then it cranks it through the conveyor belt, right? Uh, DevOps is a diverse thing. So fundamentally, at its root, um, DevOps works best when you have a huge array of diverse skill sets and backgrounds and genders and races and all of those things working together to figure out how to solve a problem. There's a bunch of reasons why you need this. One really good one is simply, if you're trying to build a great product and your vision of humanity is so narrow as to only include one-fourth of the entire globe, how good can your product be? Right? Um, like, you know, forget about whatever else you might believe. Like, that alone just should convince you that you need to figure out how to get your teams to be more diverse. Okay. So, if those are the sort of foundational elements, uh, what are the things that we do? Okay, I'm going to whiz through these kind of fast. But the first thing you're going to do, uh, and good DevOps teams do, is they have a sense of purpose uh, that's larger than simply the task at hand. So uh, you need a sense of purpose that's bigger than we deploy the website, right? Or, or, or whatever it is. So here's an example, this is chefs. So when you write this purpose, uh, first it's gonna be public. Second, uh, it needs to be short. So like one sentence, uh, so you can repeat it back to people when they ask. Um, you need to include the people that you're trying to help because again, it's about human beings, right? Uh, you need to include the product that you're trying to do help them with, and then you need to include the change you hope those people will see through using your product. So here's Chef's. Chef wants to be the most enduring, wants the most enduring and transformative companies to use Chef to become fast, efficient, and innovative software-driven organizations, right? Um, 
I think it's pretty good. It's hung out. It's been our mission statement for four, probably five years now, maybe more. Um, and uh, one thing that you can notice here is there's some people that I am okay with having not be my customer. And those are the people who do not want to become fast, efficient, and innovative software-driven organizations, right? Um, and that's not to say that I won't take your money, because look, I'm gonna take your money. But, uh, but when I think about what the software I'm building is going to do, who it's gonna serve, I'm willing to build a feature that works better for someone who wants to go faster than, work, than building that same feature that works less good, but is better for someone who wants to go slow, right? Okay, so once you have a purpose, you need to have beliefs, right? So if that's our purpose, that's what we're gonna do. What are the things that, are, that we believe we should be, be embodying in order to get to that purpose? So what brings about those good outcomes? You need to write these down too, make them public. You need to include some of the principles of DevOps that we talked about earlier, um, or in whatever way you want to include them. And mix in the things that are unique to your industry or your problem. So a good example here is we build software for our users. So we do the right thing for them. Uh, I call this the right hard thing. And so what this means is just simply, uh, if you face a choice where you could do something that's easier on the development team, but worse for your users, choose the user every time, right? We eat it, user gets better. We need to have empowered teams. So uh, there's a couple different ways you can think about teams. There's actually three different uh, sort of strata of team performance. So the highest performing ones are these very highly empowered teams. So these are teams of permission to act, paired with the context they need to make good decisions, with leaders who care about the purpose of the organization and can impart that purpose to those teams, and who share your core set of beliefs. And if you can instill that in your teams, mostly you're gonna get highly empowered, high-functioning teams. If you can't have those, the next thing in terms of performance tends to be like draconian dictatorship, which is sort of sad, but that gets better to just be like, do what I say now, which I hate, but is true. The worst performing teams are like the weird middle, where your boss tells you that you're supposed to be highly empowered and everything's cool, but actually they're behaving like a draconian person. That, and so if you're on that team, that's the worst team, right? Okay. Um, Wu-Tang Financial, you need to form diverse bonds. Anybody get it? I got one guy, thank you. Um, that joke's gonna get too old, and I'm gonna have to remove it. Um, but you need to diversify your bonds, okay? Um, and what this means is, when you look across the organization, you need to figure out how to take people out to lunch, have meetings, get to know people who are outside your specialty. And that's because DevOps and people who are good at it are incredible at building tight networks of specialized people, right? So go meet your sales reps, go meet your CFO, go talk to software developers, get those things done. Understand their problems and their perspective. The other upside here is that next, you're gonna use those bonds to build consensus on important decisions. Because you've been talking to all these people before you have to do a hard thing, because in order to get this stuff right, remember, we have to touch the whole of the, in of the business from ideation all the way through to production. And so if you don't have con connections to those people from the, from the beginning to the end, it's really hard to work together to accomplish your goals. So you have to incorporate their criticism, their feedback into your plans. You have to present it back to the group and ask them for consensus. And that's not to say you're always going to get it, but at least when you disagree, you'll have a shared understanding of who each other are and where you come from. Okay, you need to build products that have strong value propositions. So, you know, the big way to think about this is good products uh, are painkillers, not vitamins. So a bad products uh, usually starts with a proposition that says, you guys are doing it wrong and you should do it the right way. That's actually, no one likes that product. But products that make you feel better, products that take away my pain, those are products that I dig, right? Um, you also need to make things people love. 
um, and focus on, on what people need, not what they want. So one customer wants uh, a feature. Many customers need a feature, right? So, so when you can, focus on what people need, not what individuals want. Um, you need to build a roadmap. So uh, how many people here build roadmaps? All right, sweet. Um, I won't spend too much time here, but basically start with having a vision, align that with some customer feedback, balance being innovative with what your customers need. Don't never have a roadmap that's only what your customers tell you, right? Because then you're gonna deliver it and they're gonna be like, thanks. But no one will care, right? No one loves you when you do that. So you need to group those things together up into themes, have outcomes for those themes. You need to distill features then uh, out of that and then go validate that with customers. The themes of your roadmap, the big items, think about the horizontal flow, those should hold, right? You should know enough about your business and enough about the problems of your customers that those will stay static. Your outcomes for those themes might hold because that, that is sort of tied to your thought about how to solve the problem and you could be wrong. And then finally, the specific features on your roadmap should change, they will change. If they're not changing, you're not listening to the feedback of what's happening in the field and you're relying too much uh, on your own beautiful intelligence. Okay, you need to always put delighters into your software. So this is a, a simplified version of what's called the Kano model. And basically what it says is, there are features that people must have. And when you go interview people, these are, these are just the things that, you, that everybody would say you must do. And then there's the performance features, things that when they're there, people are like, yeah, this is nice. And then there's delighters, and those are things that are unexpected. So a delighter, uh, a good example of this for me is uh, code review tools. Um, the first time that I realized I could paste an animated cat picture as a response to a code review in GitHub, I was hooked for life. And if you try to get me to do code reviews that won't do that, or to join a community that's like, we don't put cat pictures on our code reviews because we prefer to be strict business. Like, I'm out. I want nothing to do with it. And, and that's because that feature, that delighter, has transformed for me into a must-have feature, right? And so if you're going to look at a competitor and the competitor doesn't have that feature, you will count them out. And then they'll go to get product feedback and they'll be like, what can I do differently? And you'll be like, cat pictures. And your competitor will be like, no, cat pictures are, and like, this is how you win, right? More delighters. Okay, when you build these features, you need to build them iteratively. So uh, this is the, a, a great example. Uh, Jeff Patton is where this awesome analogy comes from. But uh, most of us build things this way, and this is called incrementally. So if we wanna paint the Mona Lisa, an incremental approach to the Mona Lisa starts like this. First, we paint her head, and we finish the whole thing, and we're like, man, she looks good. Like, I like the Mona Lisa. And then we paint her arm, and we're like, yeah, her arm looks nice. I like it. the arm's looking good. And then we paint the other arm, and then we have the Mona Lisa. The bummer with this is, what if we're wrong, <laughs> right? Like, what if the colors were bad? What if the shape of her arm was wrong? Like, you don't even know until you get all the way to the end uh, in a way that's pretty, pretty brutal. A better example is the iterative approach. So instead of saying, I want to paint the Mona Lisa, where you've thought it all through in your head, you go, I always think we should have a picture of a woman in a pastoral setting. And so you build a sketch, and you're like, does that look like a good woman in a pastoral setting? And you show it to some friends, and they're like, yeah, looks like a woman in a pastoral setting. And you're like, yeah, what if we put some colors on it? And you don't put all the colors, but you're just like, what if that was the palette? Does that still look like a, does it look warm and inviting, and does she look good? You're like, yeah, I kinda dig it. And then you finish it, and now it's cool. And that's iterative software development, right? So. You can find yourself doing this, a great indicator here is, if your plan for the software you're building starts with spend six months building the infrastructure components. We'll build the back end first, right? 
And then we're gonna get to the front end six months later. You are doing it incrementally, not iteratively, right? Okay. You need to manage your risk. Small batches, near-term hypothesis, hypothesis. Validation of your, of your choices comes from customers, not from you. So you don't ship a feature, pat yourself on the back, tell yourself it was good and move on. You need to actually find someone else to validate that that's good for you. Um, you need to introduce near-term volatility in the system to decrease the long-term risk that you build the wrong thing. Does that make sense? So be willing to change now so that long-term you get the right thing as opposed to uh, optimizing for no low near-term risk. Dev teams hate this. Like we come up with whole software development life cycles to kick you out of this conversation um, and it's hostile and wrong. Okay. Um, scale. How many people here are worried about scale? All right, stop it. Don't worry about it. Um, um, until you should worry about it. Um, and that's probably not now, right? So unless you raise your hand and you worked at Facebook or Google or your whatever, you probably don't actually have a scale problem that requires you to do these things. You have a problem that you can totally think through with like a piece of paper and like basic arithmetic. My, um, and, and so just do that. Uh, and, and stop stressing out about how the system will scale. Later on, once you win, like once the once it's already built and people love it, now now worry about scale, right? I'm not saying do stupid stuff, but like don't spend six months designing for scale for people who never come. Okay, uh, you're gonna have arguments about theory. You're gonna be like, well, what theoretically? this other thing would be true. And you're gonna solve all of those arguments with execution. So when somebody presents to you a reason why you shouldn't do something, and their reason is theoretical, you will respond with, well, but how about we run this experiment and try, right? Um, and, then you will, uh, and then you will succeed, most often, or not. But it's fine, at least you'll know. You're gonna demo. Uh, you're gonna demo once a week to anyone, uh, anybody with anything to show in any part of the organization is gonna show it off. Uh, you're gonna invite everyone to come, you're gonna record it, and you're gonna post it uh, in a visible place where everyone can see it, right? Now, 99% of the time, no one will look, uh, which is sort of a bummer. But every once in a while, someone will. And in that moment, they will receive the information about what great things are actually happening. And every once in a while, something truly epic will happen in a demo, and you will go make everyone look at it and will remind them that the demos happen every week. Okay, you're gonna choose languages and tools uh, that fit your job. So everyone here is a polyglot. You actually know more than one language. Um, certainly, uh, in terms of programming languages, in terms of uh, maybe spoken languages or written languages, we're all polyglots to some degree or another. And learning new languages and tools, that's one of the true great joys of being in, in the tech industry, is that new things happen all the time and you get to learn what they are and use them. And so, you know, when you think about using small batches and doing iterative development, you have a little bit more freedom to choose interesting ways to execute those experiments, right? Because they're a little more bounded and you could change uh, your implementation later if you needed to. This isn't like a free license to go nuts and like just throw out whatever programming language your business uses, but but free up a little um, to allow yourself to do it because it's fun and ultimately happy people build better products which then build better things and so sometimes it's just okay to have fun with your tools. You're gonna use source control. Same anybody here not use source control? No one's gonna raise their hand, you know why? Because you would be so ashamed of yourself and you would know that the whole room would be looking at you being like, oh, what are you doing, I use source control. <clears throat> and also, you're here now and I'm shaming you. Use source control, right? I know you're there, I see you when I go to engagements and you're copying around that tarball with the software, like I know you're still here. So you're gonna use source control and every year I think I can cut this slide and then I meet another one of you 
And until, and until I go a whole year not seeing anyone do that crazy shit, this slide stays. Okay. Source control. Use it. Okay. Uh, also, bug databases. Have one. Just keep track of your bugs. Um, I'm not a big fan of huge backlogs. Um, uh, Megan Gleason, uh, who does product at Chef, is sitting right here, and she knows that this is true. Like, when I see a big backlog, what I see is busy work. Like, what I see waste. Um, because I think you're going to change your mind, and then you're going to feel bad about all that stuff you wrote down that you now have to figure out what to do with. This is different than bugs. Bugs are things that you know were bad, and you should maybe think about fixing those things. Now, you may or may not fix them, but at least you should know they're there. Um, so that you can track them over time and see if they start to occur more often. So have a bug database. It's just a good thing for your customers. You're going to do continuous integration. Um, continuous integration means that those branches are always integrated to master. So this is not, I put my code in Travis and it turned green. If the branches are long-lived and you never merge them into master, then you're not actually doing continuous integration. The integration part of CI means that you merge. So short-lived branches that merge uh, and that go green and that you can tell they're there. And when they go red, the most important thing you're doing is fixing what went red. Does that make sense? But you must be merging, always be merging. If you're not merging, it's taking too long and you're probably thinking too much uh, on, on, the, on the incremental instead of iterative tip. Okay, uh, you're going to follow what I call the four-eyed rule. Um, and the four-eyed rule is basically you're never going to do anything that would impact a production system, and most systems are production for someone, right? Including your dev environments. Like, someone else is using it, and so it's production for them, right? Uh, without four eyes seeing it. You have two, which means you need one other human with their eyeballs. That gets you to four, right? Feel free to get to eight or ten or whatever you want, but at least four sets of eyeballs. Um, it's a weird rule because some people don't have two eyes. I understand that. Uh, just metaphorical, we can just go with it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you're going to write tests. Um, tests, uh, there are four kinds of tests. One of the things that I think is really hard is people don't have a good vocabulary for testing, even though QA as a discipline is pretty good about it. This is mine. I really think there's four kinds you should focus on. One is a unit test. Can I test this single function? Another is an integration test. I'm putting multiple classes or units together and testing that they integrate correctly. There's functional tests. These are user... Uh, oriented, they're high level, they're from the outside in is one good way to think about it. And then last are smoke tests. And these might be the most important class of tests. These are the ones that just quickly tell you if the system is working as intended. Uh, where there's smoke, there is fire, right? And you're going to use those because at some point you're going to deploy your software. And when you deploy it, <clears throat> you're going to want to be able to know if it's going to work. And that's what's going to tell you that is the smoke test. Um, okay. Uh, you're going to do continuous delivery. Um, this is a pretty good diagram about continuous delivery. What this really means is the software needs to get to a place where you could ship it to a customer at any time. That's the short answer, right? So you're going to do continuous integration, short branches. They're merging in all the time. You know it's green. The next step is if I wanted to release it right now to a customer, could I? What's in my way? And just make that path, make the answer to that be yes. And now the question is, should I ship it to a customer? And that's where you want to get and once you do that, you're going to have one path for how things change inside the organization. And this isn't like a weird and sometimes controversial statement. But when I've gone out and looked at the really high-performing organizations, um, 
they don't have a hundred different ways to put software in production, right? Um, and even what, what they usually have is one way, and then they have a couple of like degenerate cases. So there's like the normal way, and then there's the fast way, you know? Uh, so like Facebook will tell you that they have a, uh, um, a release train, right? They release like I think twice a week, right? And whatever code has been merged on the day the train leaves the station ships to production. And that's true. Also, they could ship right this instant. You know what I mean? There's two paths. But it, it follows the same route. It's not like when they ship this instant, it doesn't do what the release train does. Does that make sense? It's just doing what the release train does on a different timing, right? So there's one path. And that one path has to be flexible at the level of execution because you don't know what you're doing. But the path, the route it takes should be the same. Um, and it should reinforce your principles. It should aid your flow. Um, and it should involve both your applications and your infrastructure because infrastructure and applications are tightly coupled, right? We like to think that they're not because we, went, we, we were moving slowly, right? One of the things we learned in DevOps was that this tight coupling was real. So when it took you six months to deploy software, you got to pretend that the software didn't care about the infrastructure because you had literally six months to build the infrastructure. And now that you don't, now that it happens instantaneously, you realize that without infrastructure, applications are useless and infrastructure without applications on them are wasted heat and money, right? So everything goes through the same thing because in fact they are the same. You're going to focus on availability. Availability is uptime over uptime plus downtime. So focus your efforts on reducing the mean time to diagnose a problem. So you want to figure out how long, and uh, once you know a thing is wrong, how long does it take for you to fix it? So mean time to repair. Remember, failure is inevitable. So you're not trying to avoid failure. You're just trying to get better uh, at responding to it. <clears throat> You're going to collect metrics uh, kind of obsessively. This is another thing that's true of basically everyone who loves the DevOps is they sort of obsessively love graphs and charts. So you're going to collect metrics from all kinds of places, the OS, the network, applications, your process, uh, in as high a resolution as you can get it uh, with as few systems as you can possibly swing, right? Uh, you're going to plan for your capacity. Uh, you're going to identify key metrics. You're going to put them on a graph. You're going to set a limit. You're going to plot a trend line. And then you're going to run that trend line out over time. And you're going to say, on Tuesday the 25th, we need more capacity. And you're going to do that before you decide to do like magical auto-scaling pony rides. Because you probably don't have an at-scale problem. Remember from earlier? Right? You just have a problem problem. And then later you'll have a scale problem. And then you'll have enough data that you can start to actually make assessments about how you could accurately scale in advance. Okay. Uh, you're going to only alert on the things that are actionable. So you're going to only send the right things to the right human. So a great example of this, uh, I will tell this story as quickly as I can. Basically, I was a systems administrator, and there was this page that we would get, and it said, it's happening. That's all it said. <laughs> and then about 20 to 30 minutes later, sometimes, let's call it 60% of the time, you would get another one, and it would say, it's happening, dot, 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 again. And I worked at that company for five years, probably, and we never knew what was happening. But it would happen at like 2.30 in the morning, you know? And you're on call, and you get woken up, and your spouse gets woken up, and it's, she's like, what's wrong? And you're like, it's happening, baby. And she's like, yeah, our divorce is totally happening. Um, okay. Only alert on things that are actionable. If you can't do anything about it, don't alert on it. That It did eventually stop when we decommissioned a data center. So there was a server somewhere in the data center that was saying it was happening, but we still don't know what it was. Okay, you're going to practice incident response. Um, this is the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. The number one thing you're going to remember from this is that the number one step in this process is orientation. Using your brain and your knowledge of the system and the ways that it can fail to decide what you should do next, right? Uh, 
So that's the step most people skip. We observe a problem, we throw stuff at it. You know, we're like, I'm gonna log, I'm gonna do stuff, I'm gonna bang on a keyboard, right? Better to step back and have a little think and, and use your brain to think about what, how that might happen and then use that as the, as the way that you go through the troubleshooting and response curve. You're gonna <clears throat> hold post-mortems after incidents. So anytime something bad happens, you're gonna hold a blame-free post-mortem. And this is the, the list. Uh, there's lots of ways you can learn about this, but essentially, you invoke the space. So you say, we're here to learn, not to blame. You describe the incident. You establish the timeline. You identify what the contributing factors to the failure were. You describe the impact. Then you describe how you will remediate, how you remediated that, that problem. And then you're gonna describe the improvements you're gonna make uh, to the response process or to the system in order to avoid that failure in the future. This is Mark Burgess. Mark Burgess is the guy who wrote CF Engine. He's one of my heroes. He's also ridiculously photogenic. Um, <clears throat> as someone who wrote a configuration management system and knows most of the others, I can tell you for sure he's the best looking of us. Um, and, uh, and you should love him like I love him. He's so good. Um, uh, but he has some principles of scalable system design, uh, and whether you know those principles or not, you use them every day. You think about, he, you want to think about systems as autonomous actors who are responsible for their own behavior. They make progress toward their own goals. They have clear promises between one another. So instead of building systems that, that make demands that go, you do this and you do that and you do this and you do that, instead we want to build systems that say, hey guys, let's deploy and then the system figures out how to behave correctly without having the central observer. When you do that, the system's more resilient to failure, uh, it's easier to reason about, lots of things get better. It's also more complicated to build, right? Um, but when you do it, the investment pays off. You're gonna have a little bit of humility. Um, it's easy, because we create things from scratch, to not have humility. It's easy to just be like, well, right, I can crush it. Um, but there are really three things that uh, it behooves you to have humility about if you wanna be good at DevOps. One is about your code. Um, your code's probably not that good, um, and mine's not either. Um, and when somebody reviews your code in a way that really makes it better, that is a gift, right? Um, and having the humility to take that feedback in uh, and turn that gift into a better product is what it's all about. Um, you have to have some humility about your position, um, especially if your position involves authority. So mine does. Um, I can get away with a lot of things because I founded the company and I wrote Chef and now I'm CTO and there's like 300 people and I think I'm not a jerk most of the time and like people want to do nice things for me and it's awesome. And really, uh, I, I try to not use that position for evil. Um, I, there's two things, if I'm being honest, uh, that, I, that I use my positional authority to get and one is an office that's easy for me to commute to uh, and then the other is that uh, just this is a secret. Can you guys keep a secret? Okay, I don't fill out expense reports. <laughs> um, I'm just letting that go and see how long, this might be the moment that I ruin that, so shh, don't ruin it for me. Okay, um, and then finally, you need to be humble uh, about your own knowledge. Um, no matter how much you think you know, um, other, someone always knows more than you do. There's always someone who's better than you at the thing that you think you are the best at. Um, and finding those people and learning from them uh, should be one of the great missions of your life. Okay, when we think about our software, we need to design for simplicity, for extensibility, and for reuse. Um, 
I want to talk about simplicity for a second here because I actually contradict myself in another uh, slide deck uh, later on. What I mean by simplicity is you want the system to be as simple as it can be and no simpler. So simplicity itself is actually a very bad goal, right? Because uh, the Ford Model T, for example, is very, very simple. Uh, we could build one out of spare parts on this stage if they locked the door and said we couldn't have a beer until it was finished because it's just not that hard. Um, however, when you try to start it, if you use the wrong arm, it will break your hand or your arm, right? Literally, it'll just be like, and then you're like, oh, you used your right arm. That was dumb. You're supposed to use your left arm to turn the crank, right? Very, very simple, awful to use. So uh, as simple as you can make it, but no simpler. Um, extensible just means that other people, when they find a problem that you didn't think of, can build on top of what you used so that they can extend it to their use case, right? And then last, reusable. So if I can uh, reuse a component, as soon as you find, and you see this in like microservices as a, or, or service-oriented architectures, honestly, um, which was simply that as soon as two things need to call a service, make it its own service, right? Because uh, now it's reusable. Okay. Oof. Let's take a second. I got I got a couple minutes left, and that was those are those are those are the forms. So those are the things that you can that we the people who do DevOps do in their daily life, from product people and executives to software developers to uh, operations people. So how do we apply that? Um, how many people here think you like do DevOps in your organization right now? How many people want to do it but aren't? Okay, this is probably more useful for you. So this is how you can take some of this stuff and go now try to apply this to your own life. So the first thing you're gonna do is remember the start of this presentation, which is DevOps is about the way that individual people uh, have learned over time from each other to do our jobs really well, which means that ultimately you doing your job really well is in some ways doing DevOps as long as the spirit of that is true, right? If you look like a DevOps, then you probably are a DevOps. And if you don't, then you're probably not, right? Um, but trusting in your own skills, trusting in your knowledge of your environment. One thing I see a lot, uh, especially when I go out to large enterprises, is people really downplaying their own intelligence and their own agency and their own capabilities. And like, look, if you work for Booz Allen Hamilton and you can navigate a huge government contract and then build systems that are compliant to all of the federal regulations in the world, you are just as smart as a great engineer at Google. You are. Like, it is just as hard. It's different, no question, but, but it's, it's just as difficult. So you need to trust those skills and trust and believe in yourself and in your own position. And remember that there's safety in your technique, right? Remembering those core principles, practicing your forms, getting better at those things, uh, and using your own judgment and discernment about how to apply those techniques to your specific problem. Okay, so if it's always gonna be this unique and special snowflake, uh, how do we not send you out in the world to just get beat up, right? Um, I watched this with my kid. I have a six-year-old kid. She saw the Karate Kid for the first time, and it was awesome because she was in complete suspense about whether Daniel was going to win the match. <laughs> and I loved that so much because I remember being a kid being like, is he going to win? They broke his leg. Oh, no. Okay. Um, so here's how I... When you think about DevOps, the big hurdle to DevOps is actually simply that you don't know what it feels like to do it, right? Um, it, it's sort of like saying if you want to run a marathon, um, it's obvious, but the first step is to go running. It's to put on shoes and to like go for a jog, right? And like that doesn't make you a marathon runner, but it gets you a lot closer than reading books about marathons, right? Um, and so 
what I recommend is that you take eight weeks and you grab as many people as you can from across the entire organization and you organize them around a single business problem. Um, and then over those eight weeks, you practice all of the different things that I talked about here to produce some outcome for that business problem, right? In an iterative way. Uh, let me show you how. Um, stage one, you're going to pick a problem. So your problem needs to be small enough to have a meaningful iteration in eight weeks. And what I mean by meaningful iteration is you have to be able to do it more than one time, right? Otherwise, it's, it's an eight-week project. But it's not like it's, it, you have to be able to iterate on it and deliver it more than once, right? Uh, it needs to be vertical, not horizontal, in general. What I mean by that is a business problem that cuts, that, that goes all the way to an end user, right? As opposed to like uh, just a thing for yourself or for your team, right? Um, then you need to set your purpose and your belief uh, and organize your teams. So you need to write down the purpose of this team. So we're going to get together. We're going to work for these eight weeks. Why? What's the reason? What are, why are we really doing this? What are the beliefs that we believe, if we follow them, will lead to great outcomes? And then we're going to empower this team to act. We're going to give them the context for why this problem matters, why the business needs to solve it. We've given them a reason to go. We've told them how we want them to accomplish it and the core beliefs and principles we want them to follow. And then we're going to let them go, and we're going to be available to answer questions about what we're doing and why. Then we're gonna move into product development. So this has us writing down the value proposition for what we're gonna do and why we think it's gonna help. Building a roadmap that has themes and outcomes and features, right? Um, we're gonna include delighters, right? It's really tempting in an eight-week project to only ship the things that you think are required. But when you do that, no one loves it, right? So you have to figure out what is the thing that you're gonna do that people don't expect uh, and that will really bond them to the system. And then you're gonna focus on simplicity, being just as simple as you need to be and no simpler and then extensibility and reuse. Then you're gonna iterate on those features. Uh, you're gonna manage your risk by iterating in small batches that you validate with customers. So you're gonna go out to those customers probably every week, and you're gonna talk to them about whether or not what you've built solves their problem. You're gonna choose languages and tools that are the right fit for the job. Um, maybe they're the tools you already use, maybe they're not, but you're gonna give yourself the freedom to do that because it's only eight weeks, right? So what's the harm? Uh, you're gonna ignore scale. Because for sure, in eight weeks, you don't have a scale problem, right? Um, most of the time. If you do, and you're sitting there being like, that guy's wrong, I totally have a scale problem. Like, okay, fine, you have a scale problem. Like, you get a cookie. Um, uh, when you argue about theory, um, refocus on execution. So people in eight weeks will always come back and be like, oh, well, theoretically, we could never do this because blah, 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 blah. The DBAs will never let it go to production. Uh, Bob in security will never blah, 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 blah. And you're going to be like, great, 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 great. When we get there, we're going to solve it by just doing the work, and then we'll deal with it later. We're not going to like spend three weeks having a theoretical argument. Uh, you're going to demo every week for eight weeks, and you're going to record that demo, and you're going to show it off. Then you're going to iterate on features. Um, you're going to use source control, right? Who all is using source control? Raise your hand if you're going to use source control. That's my source control people, right? I saw someone's in here in marketing, and they're like, I don't use source control, and you need to get it. Okay. Um, uh, you're going to have one workflow for how things change in this eight-week project, right? You're going to figure out how you're going to do continuous integration. You're going to figure out how you're going to do continuous delivery and get to a place where you could ship your prototype for solving this problem. Uh, and you're going to do all of that stuff, and you're going to try to work one way instead of working five different ways on different parts of the problem. And you're not going to do anything to the system uh, without four eyes seeing it, right? No thing goes anywhere without uh, at least two people knowing what's going on. 
I already covered this. You're going to do CI. You're going to do CD. You're also going to write one test at a time, right? Unit tests, integration tests, functional tests, smoke tests. Um, you're never going to build a roadmap that says spend five weeks improving our functional test coverage. A, the people that you assign that task want to die. Um, B, uh, it doesn't actually buy you what you think it is because uh, you're not responding to actual production code issues. So like, it doesn't prove what you think you're proving. But you should be writing tests, and you should be doing them one test at a time, one feature at a time, one failure at a time, right? Um, and you're going to use those principles of scalable systems design um, to make uh, your final resulting system be able to scale, yay though, you do not have a scale problem. Um, you are going to then operate what you built, right? You're going to deploy this thing into production somewhere, right? Uh, you're going to focus on its availability. You're going to learn how do I understand it being available? What's the smoke test? How do I know what's working? You're going to collect metrics about it and you'll be able to see the charts and graphs. You're going to plan for its capacity. It's probably small, but hey, like we're going to plan for it anyway. You're going to alert only on the things that are actionable. Uh, you're going to run incident response. So your little prototype will break because you're deploying to it a lot uh, and because you're iterating and it won't be perfect. And when it breaks, you're going to hold postmortems and you're going to do incident response and you're going to run the OODA loop just like uh, John Allspaw told you to. And then uh, you are finally going to deliver on this eight-week project. You're going to actually sit down and demo uh, what you have built one last time um, and you're going to make that demo particularly cool. And then you're going to do a retrospective about your experience. And when you're done with that, you will have learned what it feels like to do DevOps. You will know what everybody who started out over the course of a decade trying to figure it out learned, which is when we come together as people, when we understand uh, everyone's specialties, when we figure out to align everyone against a business problem, when we, when we have clear ways of working together, then we get great outcomes. Um, and they'll be unique to your organization. They'll be unique to you, and they'll be unique to your people, and it'll be your DevOps, and then you can come to reInvent and be on stage and give us talk about your own kung fu. Um, and the thing to remember is that DevOps is a real thing, and I know it when I see it because I see people acting on the same universal principles that I know I believe and that I know everybody else who was sort of present at the creation of DevOps also believes. And I apply it in my daily life all the time, by the forms that I have shared with you today. Um, and I apply it in my daily work constantly. Um, and because I'm me in the job that I'm in, my practice is unique. And because you're you in the job and role that you're in, your practice will be unique too. Um, but you should go forth and find that path. And that is it. That's DevOps Kung Fu. And it's 425, so. I think I, I'll answer maybe one question or two if somebody has one. Otherwise, we can all go get beer, probably. Anybody have a question? All right. See you later.